When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because great is your reward in heaven. This is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Father, we thank you that as we ask for help, we know that you will help because you're the helper. So please help us to understand your word. Help us not just to hear it. Help us to understand it and then be obedient to it. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I knew the writing was on the wall for my schoolboy rugby career when I was about 13 and 14, 13 or 14. I was actually on the rugby team But it seems something happened to everyone else but me. That is, everyone seemed to get bigger and these kind of lumpy things in certain parts of their body and I didn't seem to get those. Uh, The other kind of clear sign or writing on the wall was when I seemed to spend more time on the bench than actually on the field. And it was a clear sign to me the writing was on the wall. Maybe I should think about giving up on my schoolboy and then future rugby career because I wasn't quite the rugby type or build, I should say. Ever had those experiences where you've just seen the writing on the wall for something for yourself? As we come to think about us as Christians in this culture at the moment, even as the church, we could think in a kind of narrow sense the writing's on the wall for the church and or Christians. The signs are clear that the position or place of the church in our society and culture is shifting from its place of prominence and importance and influence. You could say, you know, the writing's on the walls if there's signs of that, but actually you'd have to say that's a reality, isn't it? And what's actually happening is uh, really legislation's catching up what's been a reality for a long time, probably. But if you were to step back from that kind of narrower view, so let's do that, and and have a bigger picture and think about 
the writing on the wall and think about that in terms of God's view of the world, of history and our lives, you have to say that the writing on the wall has been there for a long time. The signs have been clear for a long time, that we're on the brink of something that's inevitable that's going to happen. The writing on the wall that's been there for, the long, for a long time is the fact that God has sent his King Jesus. Jesus has come. The long-promised King has come and Saviour. He lived, he taught, he ultimately died as he said he would, he rose as he said he would. They're the clear signs of what is next going to happen, which is inevitable because he said it would happen, and that is he will return. What does that mean? That means he will lift up those who have humbled themselves and he will bring down those who have exalted themselves. And as you know, as we went through Daniel, that's where the phrase, the writing on the wall, came from, where a great king made a great party for himself, but the writing on the wall literally came and he was brought down. So for us, as we think about our lives in that broader sweep of history from God's perspective and see and know the clear signs that Jesus has come and that he'll come again and we've turned to Jesus, we've repented and we've trusted in him and we know the new life that comes with that. The great question is, how do we live between that first coming and that second coming? What, What is a picture of the kingdom life? And so that's what we come to as we come to this section in Matthew, Matthew chapters 5 to 7 you know, typically known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of five sort of teaching sections that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the most well-known, you'd have to say, and it's, it's the most well-known and probably the largest summary of Jesus' teaching. We've called this series The Authentic Life because I'm convinced it's telling us that we are to live this authentic life in the kingdom as we wait for Jesus' return. Why am I convinced of that? Well, let's kind of cheat a bit and go to the conclusion of the sermon because I think that's the key to the whole sermon. So let's go to chapter 7, verses 24 and 27. It's a classic, all-too-familiar passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about these two foundations, two types of people who are either the sensible or wise person or the foolish person. And what's critical to the difference is, let's read it in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, the words of Jesus, and acts on them will be like a sensible or wise man. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man. So there's the difference. You either live an authentic life or you claim something to be true and you claim to understand it, you've claimed to have heard it and you act upon it or obedient to it or you don't. That's it. So what does it mean to live between the first coming of Jesus and the second? To live an authentic life. 
that is to hear the words of Jesus and obey them. The wise hear and do, the wise hear and do, the wise hear and do. The foolish hear and don't. John Stott says it'd have to be one of the most well-known parts of the Bible, both to people in church and outside of church. But he goes on to say it's probably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. Is that true of us? Now, I'm slightly excited about uh, getting into the Sermon on the Mount because really it was the first part of the Bible that I studied closely for myself as a young adult Christian. And I did that by studying this, uh, looking at this commentary by a man called John Stott, the Sermon on the Mount, which I think it was originally called something like a Christian counterculture. And so from that point, John Stott became a bit of a Christian hero. And so it is a very favourite part of the Bible for me as well. Whether I'm authentic in that is another question. Now, this teaching of Jesus of how to live in the kingdom, this authentic life, doesn't just come into a kind of uh, vortex of no information. You just pick it up and it's sort of a moral or ethical code that you can kind of put on a pamphlet and you go and live and you get blessed. Now, it comes in the context of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been introduced to Jesus and who he is and his message. So he turns up in chapter 4, verse 17 if you want to turn there, and he says, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. His primary message is repent. Turn to me because the kingdom of God has come near. That is, I'm the king and I've turned up. In case you missed it. And then he goes on in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is on about the kingdom where he's the king and what he says as the king bringing in the kingdom is the right response is to repent, to turn from living your way and having you yourself as king to turning to live his way, having him as king. And so today we really zero in on our first instalment, if you like, of what it is to live the authentic life. Matthew 5 to 7 really is a picture of that and it's a picture of what a repentant life looks like. And today, as we zero in on the Beatitudes or the beautiful attitudes, I've summed them up like this. To be humble, to be hungry and to be hated or harassed, if you wanted to soften the hated word. Humble, hungry, and hated. But before we jump into the particulars, we need to think about who's listening. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2 says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Who are the crowds? We saw that as he went around preaching, people followed him. The news about him spread in verse 24. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. But it's a mix, isn't it, because he's just called four people to follow him 
So he's got these four disciples already that have responded to his call. And then you'd have to say this crowd of people who, in the world's eyes, were poor and needy and needing help. That's who's listening. And so he, he starts his teaching, his sermon. And the first thing I want us to notice is the obvious thing, and the obvious thing is always the repeated thing. And so one of the obvious repeated things is the word blessed. Blessed. The poor in spirit are blessed. Those who mourn are blessed. The gentle are blessed. It sounds nice, doesn't it? But what does it mean? To be blessed simply means to have the approval of God, to be commended by God. Some people use the word happy and say it means happy, but I think that kind of reduces down the idea of blessed. I mean, I think if you are blessed, you can be happy, but happy has the sense of a response, particularly an emotional response, that's a response in proportion to your circumstances that can change in a moment. You know, very subjective. But what Jesus is talking about is an objective judgment that he's making or God's making about people based on his view of them and particularly what he's done for them in Jesus and how they've responded to him. You could say blessedness indicates the smile of God. Or as one teacher says, Max Licardo, he puts it like this. It is to have the applause of heaven, led by God himself, to have the approval of God. And as Jesus is king of all, God himself, there is nothing greater than having his approval. There's no higher blessing than to have the approval of God. No greater gift than have God smiling. No greater gift than have the heart of God warm towards you and having all of heaven and his angels cheering up out of their seats in a standing ovation if you like doing the Mexican wave because of you. That's what it means to be blessed. It's so cliched to say we're all wanting to win someone's approval. That may still be true of you. The approval of someone that you've never quite won, that you still would die for, to belong to someone to belong to some people. Give that up and know the approval of God and his blessing. How you hear the rest of what Jesus says will be determined by whether you want the approval of God or not. So who are you living for or whose approval are you living for? Because if you're living for God's, you want to embrace what Jesus is about to say. So let's hear what he has to say. As I've said, I've summed it up with the words humble, hungry and hated and hopefully you'll see that those concepts comes out as we look at these Beatitudes. The, the first four really have to do with 
us and God or people and God. But then the second four, you'd have to say that it turns to kind of the interpersonal or to the followers of Jesus and others. There's a vertical and then he turns horizontal, if you like. There's a bit of a summary. But the first one he says is the poor in spirit. What does that mean? Essentially, it simply means as you come before God, you recognise who he is and then quickly recognise who you are. And before God, you recognise yourself as unworthy. It's a bit like when you go somewhere great uh, around the world with a great sort of, like Ayers Rock, which I've never been to, and you look up and you think, wow, that is big. And you don't think, gee, I'm big in relationship to that. You think, no, I'm small in relationship to that. Same idea when it comes to understanding who God is, particularly in Jesus, you realise you're not worthy. You've got nothing that in your, of yourself that you can commend to him. Your morality, your achievements, whatever. Then, in fact, more than that, you're spiritually bankrupt so that you deserve to be cut off from God forever. It's a full, frank, factual, conscious confession to God about who you are in light of who he is. And that without someone doing something, you're doomed. You will be cut off from ever, forever. And that, of course, knowing Jesus and, and his death, that it's only through the death of Jesus on your behalf that you can have God's approval, but in his death and trust in it, you can be guaranteed of God's approval. So this poor in spirit really cuts off the idea that what Jesus is outlining in these Beatitudes are the steps to entering the kingdom of heaven. Because it said you've got nothing, you can't achieve anything to get into heaven. It's actually not about performing, but about being poor. And before we're too quick to be very Western and, and sever the connection between the spiritual and the physical, because he is talking about poor in spirit. But I think if you've lived life long enough, you know there is an interplay or connection between the physical and the spiritual, don't you? So when you, you, someone shared already, when they've struck down physically, like for me, when my physical health was, you know, the full physical health that I thought I was enjoying and richness, some of that was taken away, so I became poor in my health, that had an effect in, on my relationship with God. It necessarily does. Because the thing you're just clinging on to as a little thing to prop you up going along in life, you can no longer cling on to. So all of a sudden you find yourself scrambling somewhere else. Or it may be your mental health. You might be enjoying the full richness of that, but somehow God might take some of that away. So you become a little bit poor in that sense. And often the testimony of people who experience that, maybe not initially, but often in time. It's interesting, uh, dare I say this, but maybe someone told me, uh, one of the people on the, I think it was the Bachelorette, sorry, um, 
I watched it. Oh, sorry, yeah, I'm going to admit it. I watched part of one um, episode. And the, there was a young man on that that was just remarkable in his character in relationship to the person he was spending time with. And I said to my daughter, this guy is amazing. He just seemed so humble. He never talked himself up. He was gentle. It was only later on that someone told me that actually, you know, he's only 24, but part of his life story was apparently he was very obese and he ended up having a heart attack. And so he was on the brink of death. And quite clearly he was humbled by that. And it shaped his character. And so Jesus says, recognise your poor in spirit. Summed up beautifully in Isaiah 61.5, Woe to me, Isaiah cries, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Before God, he realised how unclean he is. So the key to being poor in spirit is to look to Jesus. It's interesting how this principle flows out, this principle of humility flows out into uh, the rest of culture, doing a bit of reading on leadership. And one of the books I've been reading is called Extreme Ownership, written by two very um, significant, strong, powerful, influential US, ex-US Navy SEALs. If you picture what you think that looks like, that's what they look like. And in the book it says this, for leaders, the humility to admit and own mistakes and develop a plan to overcome them is essential to success. Wow. Hang on, you stole that from Jesus. (laughs) They're saying it's a principle that works in life. Another bit of reading I was doing is on self-awareness. And one person says, all growth, all growth begins with self-awareness. Hang on, hang on again. That, that's what Jesus says. So th- this first, I'm spending a lot of time on this, poor in spirit, because it is the first essential that all the others flow from. This idea of being humble, because it's about firstly recognising who God is to us in Jesus And if you truly understand that, you will truly understand yourself and be poor in spirit. Of course, the next follows to mourn, which is simply to grieve over sin, firstly your own, and then the effects of sin in the world. The sin of the world, the injustice, the cruelty, the the abuse, the selfishness. It is to mourn, to, to shed tears over to watch the nightly news and say, Lord, how can it be? And to recognise I contribute to that. So it is to mourn, not to condemn, which we can be so quick to do as Christians. That's our natural response. Jesus says no. He reverses that and he says mourn. Then to be meek, of course, that naturally flows from recognising your sin, mourning over it and others and the world. To be meek or gentle is the translation here. A better sense is meek because meek is the idea and you could picture a horse with all that power sort of snorting and kicking its hooves, 
controlling itself, wanting to gallop but stopping. That's the idea of meek. It's not weak where I can't do what I want to do, but it's meek where I don't do what I can do to get what I want. It's the idea of restraint, as if you're harnessed by the power of the Spirit. You don't match match power with power, but power under control. And you jump in the ring with Mike Tyson, you're weak. (laughs) You can't do what you want to do. You jump in the ring with a little child, you won't do what you could do. You restrain yourself. And so when it comes to seeing sin in yourself, seeing sin as others, you're meek towards them because you act towards them in restraint as you would want others to act towards you in restraint. But there's no point confessing, turning from your sin, mourning over it, restraining yourself without turning to something. And so it naturally leads us to hunger for something. Hunger for God and for how he would want us to live. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Thankfully, we've never experienced what it is to really hunger in desperate need and starvation or thirst. You heard of that lady and her son who got lost in the bush? I'm going to take him out because I want him to get out of the side of the house and get something, you know, get outside and do something in the holidays. So let, let, him, get, let him and I get lost in the bush for 10 days, no food and a little bit of water sucking off leaves like Bear grills. They were hungry. They crawled out of the bush, desperate for food and water. It is one of the most kind of authentic pieces or characteristics of a Christian that you don't hunger for the material and the physical, scrambling for everything you can in this life, but you hunger for the spiritual, a right relationship with God and the implications for your life, how you speak, act, think. I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, I end up hangry. So you just want to get out of the way. That should be us. When we're hungry... We should long for spiritual food. Get everything out of the way so we can get to God's word every day. Know what it is to know him and to know how to live. And of course, as we turn to from the the vertical to the horizontal, he turns to showing mercy. It's one of the most obvious traits of being a Christian, isn't it? You've received something you didn't deserve, so you offer that to others. Of course, you can't claim mercy for yourself and not offer it to others, which is simply recognising someone's need and doing something about it. The Good Samaritan, perfect story of that. Let me rush through the pure in heart. The pure in heart is the idea of being authentic, sincere. That your whole of your life, both public and private, is transparent before God and men. Can't point to inconsistencies. Sincere. It's sort of acting in a way not so you can get away with things, but so you're transparent and doing everything you can to be seen to be doing the right thing. And then, of course, peacemakers. I hope that as you understand 
who Jesus is and what he's done, these seem so obvious. Jesus came as a peacemaker. He went to all the lengths of dying so we could have peace with him. So to be a peacemaker is like the most obvious thing again as a Christian. Calling people to be at peace with God through Jesus, that would be a peacemaker, wouldn't it? Holding out the gospel, having, if not all, some of the conversations with people so they get to know Jesus and find that peace that can only be found in him. And then be people of peace, to be making peace with others in our interpersonal relationships. And of course, when it comes to making peace, as true of Jesus, making peace with us, it always comes at a cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the concept of cheap grace, that you can have grace without a cost. The cost for Jesus was his life. If you're going to hold out peace, there's always going to be a cost, the cost of saying sorry to someone for doing the wrong thing, the cost of actually rebuking someone or being willing to express how they've wronged you. That will cost you. The cost of even being a reconciler where you're trying to help two people reconcile. And you know what happens in war? It's called blue on blue. Friendly fire. (laughs) Get in the middle of two people, you will be shot. It will cost you. Um, It seems odd, doesn't it, then that Jesus then finishes with the last beatitude of being persecuted. To do all those great things. And then he says, expect that you'll be persecuted. But he does say it, doesn't he? Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. And then it's the only one that he expands on that he goes on and says more things about. You're blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Notice it's because of righteousness and then it's because of me. That is, when you're living for Jesus and displaying righteousness, right living, it's because of him that you'll experience persecution. And it's not just necessarily physical, isn't it? Because it's Verbal, when people insult you and say all kinds of false things about you because of Jesus. Persecution will come. And it's obvious if the message of our king is repentance, that we're to hold out, we're to call people to repentance, we're essentially saying you've got wrong thinking and a wrong lifestyle, as we've had wrong thinking and a wrong lifestyle, we need to turn to Jesus, so do you. And people will condemn us for that. There's a great book called The Insanity of God which talks about the persecuted church written by a guy called Nick Ribkin, The Insanity of God. And he talks about Chinese uh, house church Christians and, and quotes one of them who says to him, do you know what prison is for us? Do you know what prison is for us? It is how we get our theological education. So when they talk to each other about, have you been to Bible college? They say, oh yeah, I've been three years. How about you? 
And what they mean is they've been to prison. Kind of makes Moore College and SMBC look a little bit easy. Believers in Chinese house churches see imprisonment for their faith as equivalent to seminary training. So they don't actually pray and they don't want us as Western Christians to pray for them and to God to change their circumstances, actually, but for the power to endure and grow so that they might graduate with the certificate of an authentic Christian because I've persecuted and I've rejoiced. Because Jesus says, doesn't he, be glad and rejoice. That is not my natural response to being opposed. It might be yours, but it certainly is not mine. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. They can take anything away. They can hurt you and insult you in any way because of that great reward. Persecution either brings clarity and conviction to your faith or causes you to cave in. The first minister that I worked with, his name was Brian Telfer. And he's not a man that you would say he experienced the woe of Jesus, you know, that woe of Jesus, woe to you when people speak well of you. The only people who spoke well of him were the people who he shared the gospel with and they became Christians. Other people that you would experience around the neighbourhood when you mentioned that you worked for him, they'd often speak badly of him because he lived for Jesus and in every opportunity he spoke for Jesus and he's willing to take whatever response people gave to him. It'd be very easy as we've gone through each of these Beatitudes to start here and to gradually in time kind of slink into your seat further and further down into a sense of a greater and greater burden as if I can achieve any of these. A bit like me trying to cycle out of Audley National Park on my bike. Yes, I might be going up, but what's going down is my energy rapidly. You know, the picture that Jesus is portraying is, is just greater and greater and more and more amazing. But your sense of achieving that might become a heavier and heavier burden. That would be missing the point. Jesus came to bless. He didn't come to be served but to serve. So here's a classic example of God's primary message of the Bible is to give, not to take. He doesn't want something from you, he wants something for you. This is a vision of what it is to live between the first and second coming of King Jesus. It's a vision, a picture of how to live. It's meant to excite you. Wow, great clarity today. Sorry, tomorrow I start a new week and this is what it will look like. I've been empowered by Jesus to do this. It's a vision. It's a blessing. It's not a burden to enjoy but a vision to live to hear the words of Jesus and be a wise, sensible person and to obey them. You know, McCrindle Research has done research recently on people's response to religion and spirituality and what might be things that repel them from those things or attract them. The top attractor for people who were surveyed to religious and spiritual things are seeing people who live out a genuine faith 
That's exciting, isn't it? An authentic life. Jesus holds it out for us to live, expecting us to do it. And he says, and you'll see this next week, we're to be salt and light, something will happen. And research proves it's true of us in Australia. Lloyd-Jones, who's written a very famous commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says this. If only all of us were living the Sermon on the Mount, all people would know that this is a live thing. They wouldn't go looking for anything else. When the world sees a truly authentic Christian, it not only makes them feel condemned at one level, but it also draws them in and attracts them. Let me give you a way forward just as we finish. Pause for a moment of quietness now. And maybe a way forward to start as you think about these beautiful attitudes, the authentic life, is to sort of reflect on them right now. Pick one. Pick one that resonates most with you. Start reflecting, meditating, praying about that one tonight. Keep it on your mind as you live this week. God, may you help us do this. Thank you for this vision of the authentic life, of what it means to live under Jesus as our King, and we pray this for his sake. Amen.